Hi, Patrick here. The following 12, close to 12 minutes you're about to hear is a conversation I had with uh, Robert Faton, Dr. Robert Faton, and I asked him permission to include it because it occurred after the formal interview. And I think it's an extremely, extremely important uh, piece that I, I flipped and put it in the front of this episode in order to give the context to the book. Uh, for my non-Creole-speaking audience, uh, please, if you don't have a Haitian friend, make one because it's conducted primarily in Creole and French and a little bit of English mixed in. Uh, it's, it's a very important segment. It puts the rest of the episode in context, and it's one of those gems where you know the gods are down and uh, Robert Faton, the man, the Haitian, is talking about Haiti and... Uh, and it's it's a very instructive. Uh, I learned a lot from it, and I think you will as well. Jean Dominique, c'est une personne uh, uh, essentielle dans 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 la lutte, you know, pour pour une pour une autre Haïti. Mais malheureusement, où comme ça arrive, monsieur? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, crazy, <laughs> crazy. C'est souvent qui est très pénible. Mais t'es contre Jean Dominique parce que t'es t'es travaille à Radio Métropole même t'es comme Jean-Dominique, parce que monsieur, monsieur t'es voulu que t'es changé radio mal, parce que t'es dans le football. Même mm -hmm. t'es un, un lien d'amitié avec euh, Wid Mayer, donc il était radio métropole, même t'es comme Jean-Dominique très bien. Euh, 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 donc, euh, c'est ce nombre qui te fait tellement mal, l'homme t'a dit que c'est nombre catastrophique. Wow. Catastrophique. <laughs> wow. You know, those are the things that, that kill hope, you know. Yeah. When it when it reaches so personally, yeah, 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 yeah. it's like malaria. Mm -hmm. you donc, dès qu'on dalle, on ne sait dès qu'on brille, par exemple. Donc, monsieur, même l'école, avant. Monsieur, tu un peu plus âgé. Mais ça, il fait mal. Donc, mais c'est la vie. C'est pas qui pénible. Moi-même, parfois, je dois me myself parce que je suis tellement désolé. Je dis, ah, je religieux, je ne dis pas que c'est fait bon Dieu parce qu'il a fait souffrir pour le tester. Et puis, je dois me catcher et dire, non, je ne peux pas aller là. Ça veut dire que je ne peux pas aller là. Résignation, ce n'est pas un peu de faire. Mais ce n'est pas un peu pénible. Et je suis 67 ans. 
Donc, tu es beaucoup plus optimiste que l'homme de 50 ans. Mais ça, c'était aussi parce que tu vas aller tomber, bah, ça, mm -hmm. mais après, après le, 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 le tremblement de terre, bah, ça a tout y bah, ça, mm -hmm. ouais, que bah, pas grand, rien que changé, en fait, bah, elle a empiré. Bah, ça, son, son découragement, son, son, bah, qui est très pénible. Chaque fois, moi, je suis en Haïti. Je ne suis pas en Haïti depuis Covid, depuis 19, fin, fin 2019. Mm -hmm. en, en 2019, je descends de la ville. C'est la ville dans son bar qui est catastrophique. Moi, je suis mangé dans Fatra, hmm. au bord de mer. Il a mangé dans Fatra, il y a un cochon, il y a un chien là, et puis il y a un moun là. L'homme qui a dit ça, il me dit, il y a un qui est intolérable, mais il a continué. Et à l'époque où tu as dû descendre la ville, où tu peux passer à toute zone qui est envahie par un gang, ou pas foutu passer la zone ça. Donc, quand on fout tout ça, si vous voulez dans le sud, c'est là pour passer. Mal là, bah, il est en mauvais état, mais pas, pas de violence, pas de menacé. Mais qu'on n'y a pas foutu faire ça. Mais, mais, mais l'homme ou un a mangé avec cochon et puis un chien, donc fatra ou, ou montagne fatra. Mon cher Souma a été terrible. So, C'est complètement dé. C'est la destruction de l'être humain. Hmm. So, qui j'en voulais moun gagne espoir leur leur vivre dans conditions ça une condition de violence yeah. vraiment c'est c'est pas violence <rire> revolver mais c'est violence d'un système qui qui parfait pour là parce que le système c'est un système qui est tellement dégoûtant mais enfin Okay. The dehumanizing. Absolutely dehumanizing. Yeah. You know, it destroys, yeah. you know, what it is that human beings should be. You mm -hmm. know, certain respect for l'autre, you know. Minimum things. It's not even, you're asking for minimum things that people, people have enough to eat. And moun sa yo pa fouti manger, yo grand goût, yal donc fatra pour al manger avec chien et puis cochon. Et puis yap chèche bae. Non, c'est un bail qui est tellement pénible. C'est un bail qui... L'homme me bail, ça me dit, qu'est-ce que c'est? me retirer la partie ça l'épisode là ou bien qui t'aime? Ça, c'est où il dit, tu m'as... Non, c'est une réalité, c'est une réalité, l'ami. Donc, ça, on veut pour nous faire. C'est ça, m'a dit dans le livre. Là, il y a un bagage... Pour, pour garder et pour réfléchir. Ou pas foutu caché. Yo. Parce que mm. yo là. Yo yeah. là. Sans bouffer. Vous dites, ça n'existe pas. Mais ça existe. C'est le drame du pays. Mm. Et si vous ne pas confronter le drame du pays, ou pas foutu changer. Bah, yeah. Parce que vous avez des idées romantiques bah, comme ça. C'est pas que en vent Bayland est much better, but we've reached a point where really you don't know where we are going. It's so, you know, on est au bord d'un précipice, d'un trou sans fin. Soumba, you know, c'est décourageant. Mais en fait, as I said, you know, 
we can't resign ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, I'm outside of the of the country. I'm living in the United States. I have a comfortable life, etc. So I always feel, uh, to that extent, a bit uh, uh, conflicted because who am I to <laughs> to say certain things? But on the other hand, you know, as an intellectual, you have to do so, even though. Well, you're not suffering the same way that people in Haiti are suffering, let alone people uh, who are really at the bottom of the social structure. I can't understand their existential experiences. I'm too far removed, but but I sympathize. I, I want to believe that, you know, you can give uh, to people at the bottom a certain degree of humanity that anyone of... Uh, with a certain amount of consciousness would want to see for all uh, uh, human beings. This is why we are human beings, it's not to inflict punishment on people and see them in conditions that are totally, as you said, dehumanizing. So we need to confront those, those realities in order to change them. Otherwise, uh, by saying, well, they survive, nous pas fait pour parler de ça parce que blanc pour exploiter ça mais mais blanc well too yeah il déjà exploité anyone who goes to Haiti you see it you go to the airport you you see the poverty you see that something is deeply wrong with the country you don't need to go very far it's hmm. it's, it's it's very painful you know So, so to what extent, Professor, generation, generation, qui te quitte, brain drain, qui te happen during Duvalier. To what extent, I get the sense sometimes que, gon sense the guilt, la diaspora, parce que nous abandonné. Well, ça c'est vrai aussi, parce que, you know, nous lagué pays d'une certaine manière. Mais les conditions étaient telles. C'est pas pour, pour, pour trouver une excuse, mais les conditions étaient tellement pénibles sous Duvalier. Par exemple, ces professeurs me développaient. Regardez la réalité. C'est un choix individuel. C'est un choix parce que les conditions de l'intellection en Haïti sont pénibles. Donc, et même si on soumoune l'élite, je sais. Donc, nous avons rentré en Haïti, nous avons une belle vie, une belle caille, tout le temps. Mais ce n'est pas ça qui intéresse. Je suis un intellectuel. Je ne comprends pas les gens de ma propre classe sociale. Je ne comprends pas comment ils peuvent vivre un pays dans ces conditions. Je ne comprends pas comment ils vivent là et le voient. C'est ça aussi révoltant. You know? Uh, so to some extent, I'm not going to be in the house because I'm not personally going to live in the house. So, it makes it the country. And every time I'm going to be very, how do you say it, or what the heck is going on there? How people can continue to live under those conditions. So, so, kiso where kibo hope? Kiso where lo Haiti? Well, because there are people who are still struggling in Haiti, trying to do something different. 
the question is whether they are going to be swallowed by the system, and once you are swallowed by that system, it's difficult mm -hmm. uh, to 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 have much hope. Uh, you know, I, I have plenty of friends who went back to Haiti after Duvalier. I almost went back after Duvalier, and uh, you know, many of those guys, some of them left again, but many of those guys stayed, and uh, frankly, without naming names they become also uh, uh, part of what some Asians have called la, la machine infernale. So, wow. So that's sad too. Yeah, 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 I have no response, but it's it's a very sad thing uh, because in order to get that kind of money, you need to be part of La Machine Infernal. So, you know, but I'm here in the United States, good salary, all of that stuff, living comfortably. So it's difficult to give lessons of morality when you're living in a very different kind of environment which is to a large degree very privileged mm -hmm. especially when you compare it to Haiti yeah. so the book we are going to discuss today this is kind of part two, uh, is the guise of excep exceptionalism unmasking mm -hmm. the national narratives of Haiti and the United States. Mm -hmm. So you write, you write it, being Haitian in America frees you to be, quote, ruthlessly, unquote, critical of Haiti and America. Yeah. <laughs> why why do you think you have to be ruthless about it? Uh, we need to see reality as it is and not continuously embellish it. And this is not just for Haitians, it's for Americans. C'est pour tout monde. Anyone who's living in a nation state has a form of exceptionalism. And it starts from very early when you are in primary school. The history that you learn about your country, it's not necessarily false or fake, but it is so embellished that it literally erases the critical parts. And the critical parts are fundamental to understand the problems that the country is facing right now. Because we can't go, for, for instance, in the case of Haiti, you can't go back continuously to 1804. This is obviously a glorious revolution, a major event in world history. But there were problems with the revolutions. There were problems with the leaders of the revolutions, as it were, the founding fathers. Uh, 
Il a créé un système très autoritaire. Il a créé un système qui a un problème de classe ou un problème de couleur. And those two problems have continuously besieged Haiti. And in addition to that, uh, you need to look at the international system. And Haiti was the first and only black nation of slaves to emancipate themselves through a revolution. And when that happened, the white supremacist order that was dominant at the time really could not cope with that reality. So we were essentially banished. We were relegated to a paria nation with sanctions. And then, as you know, the huge problem created by the French so-called indemnity uh, under President Boyer. So all of those things have to be taken into consideration and how they crystallize at the time. And when we look at that story, we see the glorious aspects, but we have to see the problematic aspects of the revolution and its consequences. Bon, definition de American ex exceptionalism and, and the Haitian one. Yeah. Well, as I say in the book, exceptionalism is really a very uh, embellished narrative of one's national history. In other words, what you're doing, you're emphasizing a narrative that is deeply rooted in the glorious emancipatory aspects of that national narrative. And you are essentially ignoring the critical parts, the problematic parts, etc. So if you look, for instance, at American exceptionalism, you have the Declaration of Independence, which is uh, fundamentally an emancipatory kind of document. You have uh, the Constitution, etc. And all of those documents present the founding of the United States as the ultimate achievement of uh, mankind. In other words, this is the republic that is free, that is egalitarian, where you have uh, the city on the hill, God is essentially manifesting uh, himself through the creation of the republic. But at the same time, you ignore all of the other critical elements, the problematic elements. You know, the United States was a slave society, was a white supremacist society. Even within the white population, it was deeply divided along class lines. Women were excluded totally from uh, the political system. So you had uh, a, a reality at the beginning, which was really one where you had, uh, for all practical purposes, a plutocracy. In other words, all of the leaders of the Republic, of the early Republic, were white men, and uh, many of them were slave owners. And if you look at George Washington, when he became the leader, the president of the United States, he was the wealthiest man in the United States. So there's a deep divide between the narrative as a Republic where everyone is equal, etc., and the ugly realities of white supremacy, slavery, class divided, gender divided. Uh, so it's a history, therefore, that emphasizes 
the beauty of particular aspects of the founding, but ignores totally the realities of that founding. On the other side of it, if you look at Haiti, we have similar problems. I mean, 1804 is a glorious revolution. It's, uh, as I've said, it's an emancipatory event in human history. It, for the first time, denies race as a marker for inferiority, for slavery, etc. So it's really a major revolution. But you have to look also at the divisions within Haitian society between the military leadership of the revolution and the rest of the population. Uh, when the revolution occurs, you have a deeply divided society along class lines and along racial lines. Essentially, the, as we say in Haiti, la question de couleur. Those two things are fundamental in the early beginning of the republic. We have a very deep authoritarian uh, manifestation in the constitutions that we've had. Uh, you are talking about an emperor. You are talking about someone, if you look at Dessalines, who has the right to essentially decide whatever he wants to decide. Uh, so you have serious problems in terms of uh, the democratic aspects of the early days of the Republic. You have the business of the division between the upper military echelon of the revolutionary forces and the vast majority of Haitians who essentially were peasants. And the problem for the leaders you know, of the Haitian revolution was how do you recover from a bloody uh, uh, revolution? I mean, uh, you know, 140,000 people died in the revolution. The economy was destroyed. And the economy, as we know at the time, was based on the plantation system. Now, the plantation system was basically uh, a system where you exploited labor where you had slaves doing the labor and you were extracting from the slaves the profits that uh, were rooted in the export of sugar, a fundamental element in the world economy. When with the revolution, the sugar economy, the plantation system is destroyed, not surprisingly, because the slaves hated the plantation. Uh, it was the home of atrocities. It was the home of exploitation. But the leaders wanted to revive the economy. So what did they do? They essentially sought to uh, create again the plantation. And not surprisingly, the only way you could do that was by authoritarian measures. So you have, you know, what, what, what Santerini, Le Code Rural, all of the uh, leaders of Haiti, Dessalines, Pétion, Christophe, Boyer, the early leaders, Toussaint, obviously, uh, they all wanted to re- impose the plantation economy. Now, if you reimpose the plantation economy, you may, not, you may not need slaves, but you need coerced labor, forced labor. The peasantry would not take that. You know, you fight for the revolution, and then they tell you you're going to go back to essentially the same conditions. So the, the, the vast majority of Haitians said, hell no, we are not going to take that. So what happens, therefore, is that you have the peasantry that withdraws essentially from uh, the economy and creates its own uh, 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 space where it can function. So you have the emergence of that peasant economy separated from the state, and peasants look at the state as an exploitative 
uh, institution that only wants to coerce them, extract resources from them, tax them, want them to work for free, etc. So you have that reality. And therefore, it's a very different history when you look at the authoritarianism, the productive system, which essentially wanted to be, again, uh, anchored in the exploitation of the vast majority of Haitians who had just been liberated. And as you know, you know the, 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 the slaves prior to, the, uh, prior to independence in 1804 were themselves divided. You had the so-called Bosal, and the Bosal were those slaves brought from Africa who were not born in Haiti, and they represented the majority of Haitians. Then you had the other slaves who had been born in Haiti, and those represented, to some extent, uh, you can say privilege, but you know they, they had certain rights that the others didn't have, and that deeply divided the Bosal from what was called the Creole. Then you had the question de, de couleur, you know, the, the affranchis were mostly uh, uh, mulatoes. Uh, they were obviously uh, 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 black, uh, 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 non-Bosal people involved in that. I mean, one of the paradigmatic examples of that is obviously Toussaint Louverture, who, as you know, was a slave, then was freed, they be then he became a slave owner, then he abandoned slavery altogether and fought against slavery. So you have all of those divisions, and you have the divisions of the 1790s between, you know, uh, people like Dessalines and Pétion and Christophe. There was a, a war uh, between the forces of Toussaint uh, and, uh, uh, and Dessalines and Pétion against the forces of the Afrochi, essentially light-skinned Haitians, mulatoes, uh, led by Rigaud and by Pétion. Uh, Dessalines won that battle, uh, and what is interesting is obviously that once Napoleon came to power, he wanted to re-establish slavery, and you had the fusion of uh, old enemies, Pétion and Dessalines, and one of the reasons I have that uh, picture on my book. This is where you see uh, Pétion and Dessalines to some extent reconciled in order to fight for uh, uh, independence and establish uh, the Haitian Republic. Uh, who are organic intellectuals? Well, organic intellectual is a term that is used by a very famous uh, Italian uh, Marxist by the name of Gramsci. And what he argues is that every ruling class has organic intellectuals. And what he meant by that is that they were the one elaborating the narratives that would serve the interests of that ruling class. So from his perspective, if you want to uh, destroy, as it were, the hegemony of the ruling class, the hegemony of the official narrative, people from below whether they be slaves, whether they be the working class, in other words, subordinate uh, people, they need to invent their own narratives. They need their own organic intellectuals. And this is a, an extremely difficult process because the educational system, to a large degree, is bent on recreating the 
narrative that serves the purposes of uh, that ruling class. So organic intellectuals are, to a large degree, allies of uh, the dominant groups in society. They create uh, the ideology that, to a large degree, legitimates uh, the existing order. That's what is meant by organic intellectuals. And any group that aspires to become dominant needs its own organic intellectuals because you need to create a narrative that can ultimately be perceived as the narrative of the whole community that you're trying to rule. So it's a complicated process. And obviously not all intellectuals are actually... Uh, organic intellect, I mean, not all organic intellectuals are allied of the ruling class because you have counter uh, narratives, counter hegemonic forces in society. But basically, the organic intellectual is the intellectual which is attached uh, either willingly or unconsciously to the dominant narrative of the ruling class. Okay. So, uh, so in Haiti, who would you, uh, throughout our history, who would are there any consistencies in who, who the organic intellectuals are? Well, we have some organic intellectuals, uh, but uh, to a large degree, uh, when I look at Haiti, because of the dominant role of the political class, I essentially look at the leaders and the constitutions that were promulgated by those leaders. There are great intellectuals in Haiti. You know, you have uh, Jean Vier, for instance, you, you have Price Mars, uh, and some of them are counter-hegemonic uh, intellectuals. Some of the literary figures that we have, uh, Humer, for instance, is a counter-hegemonic uh, uh, intellectual, is not an organic intellectual, but all of those people are tend to be in a minority. Uh, then you have, if you look at the, the movement that eventually led to uh, the ascendancy of Duvalier, you had Duvalier as an organic intellectual with, uh, what's his name again, Lorimer Denis, and they promulgated an ideology that was very much based on race and on the primacy of the black race. And those things formed, to, uh, to some extent, uh, what has been called uh, the movement noirist, which was seeking to legitimize the rule of the black middle class in Haiti, which was fighting against the traditional mulatto elite. And the mulatto elite had its own intellectuals, and you, you, know, you know that slogan of the mulatto elite, which is le pouvoir au plus capable. In other words, they don't really allude to, to, uh, to race or to color, but in their mind, they are the plus capable because they are essentially light-skinned. So, so you have those ideologies that are formed to serve the interest of those who are running the show. And you have moments like that, for instance, under Lesco, everything that was uh, attached uh, to uh, Africa or to subordinate groups like Vaudou, those things were literally perceive as enemies of the nation. You needed to destroy them and you needed to create, as it were, an ideology that was much closer <laughs> to uh, white uh, uh, Western society with the supremacy of Christianity, etc. So you have different uh, elements uh, 
depending on who's in power. But what I'm arguing for Haiti is that whether you had the Mulato groups in power or the black groups in power, it was basically the same story, that they controlled the state for their own particular advantages. They used the state as a means to uh, illicitly accumulate wealth and to protect their particular interests. This is the story of Duvalier. This is the story of Lescaut. This is the story of Borneau earlier on. So it's a story that repeats itself irrespective of those who are really in power. You, uh, you use a few German words to describe America. Uh, one of them is a Herrenvolk democracy. Uh, yeah. Can you give us an explanation? And also, I actually looked at one of your footnotes uh, you, you gave. You say since uh, America's inception up to pre-1960s, uh, its existence, that to me, that comes up to about 80% of U.S. history uh, as a Herringvolt democracy. Can you give us a definition of that? It's essentially the idea that the whites are in power. Uh, uh, there are divisions within the white group, but... Uh, it's uh, the moral community of the nation is basically white people. Uh, the, and racism is very functional in that system because what racism does is to prevent any possible alliance between uh, uh, poor whites and, you know, the black population. Uh, and uh, the other element that is important in that system is that the poorest white, uh, they feel superior uh, to any blacks. So there is a divide that is very functional for those who run the show because it divides and rule. And this is a system that many ruling classes have accepted. In other words, all of the rights were essentially rights given to the white population, and not to all whites. It was a very gradual process. The franchise is gradually given to whites and then eventually uh, to white women. But it's only in the, you know, in the 1960s with the civil rights movement that you truly have the ca capacity to see black people Get, getting the minimal kind of voice in the political system, which is to vote. So the Ehrenvolk Volk uh, system is a white supremacist system where whites are given privileges by virtue of their color. This is something that you had also, obviously, in countries like South Africa uh, under apartheid. And to a large degree, uh, the, the U.S. was, especially in the South, to a lesser degree in the North, was an apartheid society based on race as a dominant divide, but also as a system that allowed for white people, the ruling class, to uh, lord it over poor whites. And what is interesting, if you look at the history uh, of the South in particular, uh, prior to the real consolidation of the white supremacy system, you know, Black and whites, uh, poor, black, poor whites and blacks were very much uh, mixing. Uh, there were marriages, and it's only when racism asserted itself as an ideological system that uh, uh, there is a prohibition 
uh, of marriage across racial lines. This is an interesting phenomenon. It is, that prohibition comes as a result of the fact that prior to the prohibition, it existed. So you want to crystallize the division legally. And all of the legal mechanisms up till the civil war literally enforce that kind of racism. Uh, the civil war for a very short period tries to destroy race, but it can't. And Jim Crow is uh, instituted. Uh, and it's not slavery, but it's a system of racial domination, particularly in the southern part of the United States. So another German word uh, you use, you attach to the United States uh, to describe its uh, expansionist tendencies is, uh, quote, America's Lebensraum, uh, yeah, well, my pronunciation. <laughs> uh, well, I have those I I words. I the term, it comes from German. What's uh, that? I, I don't speak uh, uh, German, but I know the term is a Germanic uh, term. Yeah. It's essentially the idea that you need territorial expansion. And uh, this is the story of the United States. Uh, and it's a story which is very much connected to the history of Haiti. Uh, and, and the uh, paradigmatic example of that phenomenon of, of Lebensraum is uh, the... Uh, it's the, the uh, purchase of Louisiana by the United States. Louisiana, the purchase of Louisiana that was uh, mat materialized under Thomas Jefferson uh, was the result of the Haitian Revolution. Because, uh, uh, and most Americans don't know that. Uh, but it's a fact that... Uh, Napoleon sent his, his army, some 50,000 people, with the conviction that he would go to Haiti, reestablish very quickly slavery, and then all of those troops would march into uh, the, the part that is now the western uh, part of the United States, the Louisiana Purchase. But the defeat of Napoleon compelled Napoleon to sell at a very cheap price uh, uh, the whole western part of the United States. It doubled, you know, uh, the uh, total territorial entity of the U.S. at that time. And it's the result of the Haitian Revolution. And what is paradoxical about it is that one of the fundamental achievements of Jefferson, who was a white supremacist and who imposed all kinds of nasty uh, embargoes on Haiti, well is the result of the, the successful slave revolution uh, in Haiti. So you have those paradoxes. But the Lebensraum is also fundamentally rooted in the very beginning of uh, the American Republic. Because when the settlers arrive, they essentially say, well, those lands are unoccupied, which is really a fascinating thing to say when you know the indigenous population was there, but they considered it unoccupied. So you could take it, grab it, and if there was opposition, well, you would essentially uh, destroy that opposition. You would basically commit genocide, and that's exactly what happened uh, with uh, the indigenous uh, American population, the so-called Indians. They were wiped out and then sent into reservations. So this is the history of a country that needs expansion. Uh, 
uh, I mean, very much uh, in the words of Jefferson, he calls it the empire of liberty. Well, the empire of liberty is essentially the empire of the ruling groups in the United States who just happened to be, you know, uh, uh, white slave owners at the time. You write that Haitian exceptionalism has become nothing more than a symbolic invocation of the revolutionary past, hiding the country's dependence on foreign actors. Uh, the, the dependence on foreign actors part is what I'd like for you to kind of expand on a little bit. Yeah. Well, if you look in particular in the, uh, 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 in the last 50 years or so, there is a very strong nationalistic uh, discourse, uh, which is completely, uh, and there's no other word to use it, obliterated by the realities of the political economy of Haiti. All of the governments, uh, and that starts, I mean, very early on, uh, are dependent on external forces for the maintenance of their rule. You look at Duvalier, in spite of the fact that he had uh, 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 problems with the United States, Duvalier would never have been uh, in power uh, and his son for you know, uh, from 1957 to 1986, if it weren't for the support of the U.S., sometimes covered, sometimes very open. Uh, and what I mean by that, uh, Francois Duvalier uh, was kept in power by the U.S. government, by the Johnson administration, the Kennedy administration, the Nixon administration, Reagan, etc., because this was the Cold War they needed. They needed, you know... Uh, uh, a government that would be right-wing and that, that would be opposed to communism. It's not that the U.S. particularly liked the uh, Haitian government. It's not necessarily a fact that Duvalier liked the United States, but there was a fusion of interest. One, to keep the area uh, safe, so-called, for, for democracy, and the other, to keep power. So the U.S., uh, you know, fed uh, information about insurrectionary groups at the time in the 60s to Duvalier, armed the Duvalier. Under Jean-Claude, they created the Leopard, they consolidated uh, uh, the army. So there is a fusion of interest. It's an opportunistic fusion of interest. The most paradigmatic case of that dependence comes obviously uh, uh, with uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Jean-Bertrand Aristide comes to power, is elected, is obviously the most popular figure in modern Haitian history. But then when he's overthrown, he's compelled to exit the country. And all of his anti-imperialist uh, vision and uh, narrative literally disappears. You have someone who was continuously critical of the American empire. And then he is compelled to accept 25,000 Marines as the means to get back to power. He is condemned to sign agreements with the World Bank and the IMF, which were contrary to his visions. So there is a dependence on external forces. There is a dependence on those forces to keep power or to get back to power. 
And that dependence emasculates whatever nationalistic project you may have. So you can use, you know, a rhetoric of nationalism. You can uh, talk about Charlemagne Peralt, but the reality is that you're back in power because you have 25,000 American Marines who say, okay, now it's fine for you to get back to power. And this is what, one of the paradoxes. You look at the most recent history of the, of the country. When you have the assassination of Jovenel Moïse, you have in the first instance, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, who became prime minister, the former uh, uh, prime minister of uh, Jovenel Moïse, uh, I forget his name, uh, Claude Joseph, uh, who's uh, announced on a tweet by the international community as the leader of Haiti. And then four days afterwards, they said, no, 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 we don't like you. Uh, we, want, uh, we want Ariel uh, 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 in power. So wh what happens then? You know, Claude Joseph is compelled to exit the prime minister position and Ariel becomes the prime minister. Those are things that are very clearly illustrative of the utter dependence of the country for, uh, 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 of the, country, uh, for the ruling class to stay in power. So those are very clear examples. The fact that the country was, to a large degree, occupied by Minusta is another manifestation of that. Uh, so we are a very dependent nation, and the nationalistic rhetoric that our leaders are continuously invoking, uh, well, uh, that, that rhetoric doesn't match the reality of Haiti. And the current government, for instance, would not be in power if it weren't because... Uh, the international community has said that is a legitimate government of Haiti. So we have that sad reality that nationalism is, to a large degree, a rhetorical kind of manifestation of powerlessness. Did, did the Duvalier pair use the same thing, uh, especially during... Uh uh, you know, communism, the fight when, when the, the Western world was fighting against communism. How did he use that? Well, behind the scenes, he was being propped by... Uh, well, he was clearly being propped by the United States. I mean, there were several attempts, for instance, to overthrow uh, Francois Duvalier. And most of them were actually uh, uh, attempts that, that were foiled to a large degree because the United States supported Duvalier. And the United States fed Duvalier with the information that those groups were coming. And the U.S. armed uh, uh, Francois Duvalier and sig significantly more armed uh, 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 Jean-Claude Duvalier, baby doc. So there is a clear relationship. Uh, I mean, you have the, the, one of the uh, most uh, uh, famous examples that's when the U.S. and the Organization of American States uh, decided to uh, expel Cuba from uh, the Organization of American States. And Duvalier wanted money. He wanted to build, you know, the airport. Uh, so he essentially sold his vote for a million dollars, and that led to the construction of what is now but that's part of the story. So Duvalier used the United States, but the United States obviously was a much more powerful actor in, in, in that relationship. 
and the United States protected Duvalier because of the Cold War. Uh, as as Americans, uh, as American policymakers like to say, we may not like the guy, but he's our own bastard, mm-hmm. and that's the reality. You know, they are continuously talking about our backyard. You know, and, and in a funny way, Biden changed the term. I don't know if you heard that a few weeks ago. He said it's not the backyard; it's the front yard. Mm-hmm. So I, I assume that we've been promoted. I don't know that's what that entails, but it's basically the same idea uh, with the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean are basically under American uh, influence. This is the sphere uh, of. Uh, domination of the United States. So uh, whatever happens there is of significance to the United States. And if the United States doesn't like it, it's not going to happen. You write that the the phenomenon of Maonage occupies a privileged place in Haitian Mm -hmm. exceptionalism in history, but Mm -hmm. it has a complicated relationship to freedom, resistance, and accommodation to regimes of subjugation. Uh, How so? How can Maronage be both, and I quote from your book, a form of resistance and a type of accommodation to the existing system of predations? And you also write that the uses of Maronage are multiple and contradictory. So yeah. you've got a lot a lot going on there. Yeah, well, Maronage, as you know, it, it started uh, un, under the slave system. Uh, and what the Maron did, they wanted to escape uh, slavery, so they created, as it were, communities of freedom outside of the plantation. Now, in order to survive, you needed to accommodate at the same time uh, uh, yourself to the realities of the uh, of the plantations. You would leave the plantation alone so that the plantation would not, the plantation owners would not. Uh, you know, fight against you. So you had that kind of reality. You escape, not because it's the ideal situation, because, but simply because it's the, be- it's the most convenient possibility if you want to have some freedom. But at the same time, you're not completely free because you can't do much to help the people who are under uh, uh, the slave uh, regime. So there is the accommodation between slave owners and Maron. They exist uh, in some form of confrontation, but at the same time, they exist in some form of accommodation. So the Maron don't continuously attack the plantation, and the plantation don't, uh, 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 plantation owners are not going to attack this, uh, 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 the Maron. So there is that coexistence, but there are agreements uh, as to the limits of emancipation and the limits of the plantation owners to destroy. Uh, the Maron. So you have that bizarre uh, tension between slaves who escape, they become the Maron, and the slave owners. Now, this becomes the history to a large degree of Haiti, the fact that Haitians, uh, they are always trying to escape the predation of the state. Uh, after independence, as I've said, uh, peasants are not going to put up uh, with the system of the plantation. So what do they do? They retrench into their private plots, small plots. Uh, 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 and But they don't like the state. 
because the state is perceived as a predatory state and for very good reasons. So you have people who are exiting the system, but they are not fully free because the state is still there. And the state is continuously waging some sort of warfare against the interests of the people who exited, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this is uh, the state itself. This is the relationship of Haitians with the state. Uh, you need some protection, but on the other hand, the state has never been uh, your friend. It's always, especially especially if you are poor, you are taxed, you know, under the Makut, you were to a large degree beaten up. So you, you have a system where there is a tension between escaping the system in order to preserve some degree of uh, uh, of emancipation, some degree of freedom, but it's not ideal. It's the way you exit. Mm-hmm. And Maunage has taken all kinds of other forms. For instance, when Haitians uh, deal with um, foreign powers, they say one thing, but they want another. They say one thing to the population, but they say another. So you are in a constant state of Maunage. You are behaving in contradictory ways in order to preserve whatever you have at that moment. Uh, uh, and it's, it's an interesting phenomenon, and I think it's a phenomenon that is deeply embedded in the Haitian culture and from the very beginning of uh, the creation of the slave economy, uh, even before, obviously, uh, independence, because it starts with the Maron and it takes that uh, very political, cultural uh, character mm-hmm. in uh, the political uh, uh, system uh, of the republic. You also said that uh, the the elites also have their own form of marinage. Oh, yeah. That took I mean, me by elite, surprise, actually. <laughs> no, because they do contradictory things. I mean, sometimes they have a nationalistic, uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 narrative, but then they don't, they don't do anything that corresponds to that narrative. You have also the phenomenon of exit. I mean, uh, if you look now at uh, the Asian elite, in particular since uh, the 90s, those are people who are in... A, no, they are kind of in transit in Haiti. What I mean they are in transit in Haiti is that they place their money elsewhere, in, you know, in the United States, in France, in Switzerland. Uh, uh, they have houses in Miami. They have houses in the Dominican Republic. So whenever uh, there is a problem, they can always exit. They, they are, they are, they are marron. And what they say to the, uh, the United States is very different uh, than what... Uh, they really think at the same time there's a very peculiar relationship because even the elite, they don't like, you know, the Blanc because the Blanc is treating them as, you know, expendable commodities, even if you are part of the of the Haitian elite. And that dates back in particular to the American occupation from 1915 to 1934, where even if you're an elite, you're not really tolerated by the American occupiers. And and that becomes something that is deeply anchored in the mentality of Haitians and of the Haitian elite. Uh, they have to deal w- with the powers that be, the United States, the French, and the Canadian, etc. But they don't particularly like them. There is kind of a bizarre uh, love-hate relationship with them. They need their support, 
but they don't particularly like it. But they have to accept it in order to remain in power. You see that, for instance, right now in the negotiations between the international community, uh, the, the, the government of Ariel Henry and all of the other opposition parties, whether it be the Montana group or the uh, PAN group, all of those people are saying, we don't want the Blanc. But when the Blanc arrives, they all sit around him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is that tension. And they say, well, we don't want your involvement. But then it says, okay, uh, you, you can't recognize that party, you have to recognize us. So it's a complicated story. Mm-hmm. It's a contradictory uh, history. And Aristide was deeply involved in that, you know, from being an anti-imperialist and coming back to power uh, on the back, literally, of 25,000 Marines, and then being overthrown a second time by the very forces that had put him back to power, the U.S. Uh, and uh, uh, the French, and obviously the internal Haitian opposition. So you have those contradictions are part of uh, the history of Haiti. If you look at the indemnity, the so-called indemnity, you know, it's always represented as a complete imposition on the part of the French so that the Boye government would pay, you know, that indemnity. There is a truth to that because, you know, (laughs) the boats, the war machine of France was in the Bay of Port-au-Prince and Boye knew that if he didn't... uh, signed that, uh, uh, that agreement, well, uh, he was in deep trouble. But what Boyer wanted, too, is recognition on the part of the French power, and he wanted that recognition so that his own property and the property of the elite in Haiti would be recognized as being illegal. So once you pay the indemnity, you accept that, you literally... Uh, confirm the fact that you own that property. So you pay an indemnity, and it's not the elite, really, which paid the indemnity. The indemnity was paid to a large degree by poor through taxation and by more and more debts. And the elite benefited from that because it was legally and uh, it was legally protected by the international community once it paid that indemnity. So you have the interest of the Haitian elite and obviously the interest of the imperial power. And they tend to coincide in a very opportunistic way. You are, correct me if I'm wrong, I could have sworn I read somewhere, that kind of blew me away, I read so much stuff on Marinage, that you said there isn't a cause and effect between Marinage and the Haitian Revolution. Am I am I reading? Did I did I read that right? Well, Maonage could have existed without leading to the revolution. I mean, Maonage existed in Jamaica. You never had a slave revolution. Yeah. So yeah. So so can you talk about? Because I I somehow I keep reading other historians who somehow tried to make the connection between Maonage and Haiti, the whole system that that you know preceded our revolution as somehow you know if by implication leading to the revolution do you think you know i think yeah i, I think this is a form of haitian exceptionalism yes in the mm-hmm. sense that haitians like to think that way but when you look at uh you know if it's cause and effect there is a problem with that narrative because other slave uh, communities never achieved 
a revolution. They were revolts, but they never achieved a revolution. Now, marronage uh, led to communities of liberties, if you wish, and those had an impact on how they conceive the larger society. And the fact that they were marron meant that they could not and they would not put up with slavery. But from that fact to lead to a revolution is not a, a, you know, a linear progression. Uh, Haiti is the only country that achieved that. Uh, so Haitian intellectuals and historians have tended to put that kind of link. Uh, I think uh, there is a link, but it is not a unilateral link. Otherwise, all of the Caribbean societies and even Brazil would have had a revolution and a successful revolution. It's a very complicated business. Now, one of the realities, though, of Haiti is that if Haiti achieved uh, its independence, it also created an example that white supremacist states at that time would not tolerate. So there is fear that the Haitian revolution is going to spread. So that meant that white supremacists and slave owners, whether they be in Jamaica, whether they be in the south of the United States, would be extremely uh, uh, careful about destroying those communities and containing them. So in other words, the success of Haiti was uh, a precedent that white supremacist forces were not uh, willing to tolerate and to see uh, 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 expand. Uh, uh, and you see that in the southern part of the United States, you see that in Jamaica, and there is historians who have looked at uh, the Haitian Revolution say that one of the paradoxical effects of the revolution is that you have a, sec a second slavery. What they mean by that is that slavery becomes more vicious in Cuba, becomes more vicious in the southern part of the United States, because you do not want to see the Haitian example uh, spread. Mm -hmm. it's, it's seen by white supremacists as something that is an existential threat. You read the documents of, of the time, Haiti is really dangerous, mm -hmm. and you want to suppress it. About uh, Carlos Silius, uh, who wrote that the assassination and mutilation of uh, Dessalines was, quote, a true right of desecration, unquote. And then you write that uh, this desecration symbolized also the extremely frail basis on which Haiti's exceptionalism rested. Can you expand on that a little bit, what you meant by that? Yeah, well, when I talk about exceptionalism, and when you have a very strong exceptionalism, you need to have what, what many... Uh, 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 theorists have called the hegemony of the ruling class. And what is meant by the hegemony of the ruling class is that they are more or less in agreement over everything. There, there might be divisions, but their very interest uh, and their very narrative leads to hegemony. In Haiti, we didn't have that. 
and it dates back from the revolution. You had, you had the division between, you know, Rigo, Patreon, on the one hand, and Toussaint, uh, uh, Dessalines, and Christophe. I alluded to that. And not surprisingly, those divisions, which were to a large degree uh, uh, ignored during the revolution itself that had led to 1804, and the fear that Napoleon was going to reestablish slavery, all of those guys get back together again. But once you have the, you know, the Republic established, once you, Haiti is established, uh, the divisions reappear. And you can see that uh, with the assassination of Dessalines. Uh, the assassination of Dessalines uh, is truly that moment where you have the destruction of that hegemony. You, uh, as, uh, the assassination of Dessalines leads to the partition of Haiti. You have the south and the north. So you have, you know, uh, uh, in French, le, le déchirement uh, de, de la nation. So that kind of division uh, was embedded in the, at the very moment of independence. And no one could contain it because there were different forces, different interests, and different visions of what uh, Haiti should be, and more importantly, from the perspective of the leaders, what the ruling class uh, should become. And there was no agreement. And there was no agreement not only because there were political divisions and uh, la question de couleur was part of that, but also because of the fragility of the economy. You could not reestablish the plantation. The economy was, to a large degree, uh, very, very, very weak. And you can't have a ruling class uh, literally uh, presiding over a nation if the economy is so fragile. It leads to the fragmentation of the elite. It leads to internal divisions, internal uh, warfare, because you have uh, the economic surplus is very small, and you want to fight for it. And uh, that's the problem that has plagued Haiti since 1804. That, uh, uh, you know, even Dessalines said that, you know, you could deplume uh, 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 the, the, the chicken, the chicken uh, but you shouldn't do it, do it too much. In other words, you could steal a lot from the government, uh, but not too much, because that would lead to a crisis. The problem is that there was so little, and this is the constant problem of Haiti, that everyone is fighting to control the state in order to accumulate wealth. The state is the primordial way through which not only you rule society, but through which you can appropriate resources, maintain those resources, uh, and coercively. So there is a fight within the ruling groups for control of the state, a fight that leads to those kinds of, uh, uh, you know, assassinations, those kinds of divisions, etc., etc. And that's part of the Haitian history from the beginning up till now. I mean, you know, Haitians, if you look, for instance, at more, uh, uh, at recent history, I remember the carnival, I think it was of 1999, it was called Carnaval Grand Manger. And Grand Manger was essentially the phenomenon that politicians want to control the government in order to steal. 
And Gromoja is a phenomenon that has been part of our history way before uh, that carnival and continues to inform practices now. I, uh, my final question to you is, I think, uh, it's, uh, I think it's beautifully written, and I wanted to, to sort of make sure I quote at length uh, to ask you sort of this final question. You write, uh, quote, the constant and hollow invocation of exceptionalism leads to its utter banalization and ultimately to its incapacity to mobilize and convince. The invention of reality that rulers deploy from exaggerated claims of exceptionalism becomes so grotesque that they can no longer recreate history by extending its reach and imagining events. In such circumstances, exceptionalism drops its mask the emperor has no clothes and stands naked, unprotected. Those in power lose their legitimacy and an overwhelming cynicism overruns society, unquote. How do you keep yourself, Dr. Faton, from being mm -hmm. cynical? Is, and is the answer in your final dedication in this book to your first grandchild, Frey? Uh, mm -hmm. You included him in that last paragraph was uh, somewhat surprising to me because uh, uh, Faton, uh, you know, except exceptionalism's hanging judge seemed to disappear for a little bit and replaced by a more hopeful grandfather. Yeah, because, uh, uh, d d d you know, when you look at... Are you hopeful, I guess, as <laughs> despite all this... this well, I like to think I, I am... Uh, uh, Cautiously pessimistic. <laughs> That's the best I could I could say. You see, we've had events in Haiti when you thought that history was to was going to change and change utterly. I mean, when Duvalier fell, this was a moment of great hope, a moment where you thought that people could imagine a different society. And we know that that didn't happen. Then you had another moment with the election of Aristide in uh, 1990 and became uh, officially president in 91, where you have again a moment where you think this is going to change and it's going to change dramatically. And we see what happens. There is a coup uh, and it destroys hope and it leads to, uh, you know, murders in the slums of Haiti, where the popular sector is really suffering untold uh, violence. Then you have the return of Aristide. And that becomes both hope and uh, problematic. Hope because he comes back, but problematic because, it, it, because of the way he comes back. It's difficult to have a new narrative it's difficult to establish a new system when you come back because of 25,000 Marines. Now, maybe there was no other option, but the fact is that that's the way he came back. That immediately uh, undermines whatever emancipatory project you may have. Then you have his second election, which leads to a disaster. Uh, occupation, minister, etc. Then we have another moment of tragedy and a moment of potential hope. Uh, 
it, and that's the earthquake of 2010. Horrific uh, event. As you know, uh, something like 200 to 300,000 people died in a matter of a few uh, seconds. Hmm. And the country faces a disaster of great magnitude. And for a while, there is a feeling that, well, this is the time to rebuild the nation. This is the time to heal. This is the time of reconciliation between different sectors of society. And I think that for about two or three months, I was extremely hopeful. I thought, this is really going to change because when you see what happened, you see what has to be done in order to reconstruct a nation that has been destroyed, not only by political uh, uh, factors, not only by human beings literally so totally uh, uh, interested in defending their corporate interest, well, in destroyed by a natural catastrophe that maybe people are going to start thinking, that maybe there is going to be a moment of national unity, nothing fundamentally revolutionary, but progressive. And we see that that very quickly disappears. It disappears with uh, the type of reconstruction that is suggested by the international community. And to some extent, the international community hijacked whatever national project there might have been. Uh, the type of foreign assistance that we got, which was a foreign assistance that really privileged non-governmental uh, 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 associations and organizations, which were dominated by foreigners. And very little went to the government to reconstruct a functioning state. So ultimately, when you see those events where hope was a, was a possibility, then uh, that became uh, very problematic. Uh, so I think that when I say that I'm cautiously pessimistic is because I don't want to give, to, to give up hope. I want to think that Haitians may in fact be capable of imagining a new uh, type of beginning. The very current crisis that we have now, I think is fundamentally a, a crisis in the sense that it opens up a, a possibility for emancipation, but it also is a moment of danger where we might indeed fall again into old practices that are very authoritarian, undemocratic, etc. Uh, so uh, I have a certain amount of hope, uh, but it's very limited. On the other hand, I know that history is in fact uh, something that is full of surprises and sometimes very good surprises, and sometimes they, it, it leads to moments of catastrophe. So I'm hesitant, but I don't want to give up hope entirely because there is always something that can surprise us. And uh, in the case of Haiti, the very fact that, uh, that slaves could produce a revolution, whatever may have been its limitations, is a factor also of, of hope. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say the post-occupation uh, period was also, uh, uh, you saw some glimmer of hope? To some extent, yes and no. I mean, because uh, occupation uh, to a large degree created the decentralization of power in Port-au-Prince. And that meant that the state became increasingly 
predatory and had more power to do so. Previous to that, we had regional power, so there was a limitation to decentralization of power. But the reaction, the nationalistic reaction, uh, was to some extent something that could have led to uh, the uh, to some sort uh, of hope, but it was very quickly eclipsed with uh, military regimes and with the Duvalieris regime. So uh, hope is always limited because of the constraints, uh, the material constraints that the country faces, and also the political constraints that are part of being uh, in the global system where major powers are continuously interfering in our own affairs, and not for the interests of Haiti, but for their particular strategic or economic interest. Well, as another, another great segment, uh, Professor. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, I enjoyed it. So, hopefully so we'll have another occasion to talk. So, again. Uh, this has been very, as usual, with you. I I walk away with you know fifty things I didn't know before. You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, okay. So I'm looking forward. Thank you so much. And uh, can be be on maintain the contact. Okay, brother. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R.